0: I'm Stephen Wright, and this is a Mail Plus True Crime Special, an interview with the son of the former head of the Armed Forces and D-Day hero, Field Marshal Lord Bramall. It was a year ago this week that Lord Bramall died at the age of 95. His last few years saw him at the centre of an unprecedented police and justice scandal after Scotland Yard raided his home over ludicrous child sex allegations made by the serial liar, Carl Beach, a.k.a. Nick. In his last newspaper interview, Lord Bramwell made it clear he believed that the officers involved in the shambolic inquiry, codenamed Operation Midland, should have been in the dock, and expressed his disgust that no one had been held to account His son, Nicholas, joins me to discuss his father's extraordinary achievements in his military career and how the police wrecked what should have been a peaceful end to his life. Thank you for joining us on this Mail Plus True Crime podcast, Nick. You must have been immensely proud of all his achievements in his life. He died a year ago this week. An Old Etonian, D-Day hero, former head of the army, ex-head of the uh, armed forces, and someone clearly, Her Majesty the Queen, held in the highest respect. How would you summarise his achievements and how you saw that as his son?
1: His achievements were quite extraordinary. I mean, from... His school days, when he was a a bit of a star, he was a very talented sportsman, Uh, he then went on to, uh, he joined the British Army, landed on the beaches of Normandy uh, on Juneau Beach, fought through the war, was wounded twice, won a military cross, uh, then commanded every echelon of the British Army going on to become Chief of the Defence Staff, the professional head of the British Army. But amongst all his achievements, and they were, that was any part he was a he was essentially a very modest man and a very down-to-earth individual. Uh, he was a very good father to my sister and myself, but he was sort of in some ways an ordinary man who had an extraordinary
0: career. And I guess that, that, to the people listening to this podcast, makes it even more extraordinary that his home should be raided and he suffered the indignity of being interviewed for nearly two hours over completely bogus sex abuse allegations that that should happen to him.
1: Yes, I mean, there there was nothing that led anyone to believe that that this might happen. I mean, this came out of the blue, uh, a knock on his door uh, one morning at 8 o'clock, two police officers. Uh, Dad, I think, thought it was a security issue. He invited them in. They said, I'm afraid there's been a complaint made against you by somebody. They wouldn't tell him who. 40 years ago uh, we've got a search warrant to search the house and in came 20 men plus, I think, in white overalls and they went through the entire house. Uh, my mother, who was dying of Alzheimer's, uh, was being sort of shunted from one room to another. My sister was asked whether we were happy that he could see his great-grandchildren without uh, somebody being present. Then they left. Uh, I think they took a speech from, that he made to cadets at Sandhurst and something to a general who was strangely also called Beach. And then he heard nothing for about two months, despite, you know, many attempts by his lawyer to find out exactly what he'd been charged with. So I think he was dumbfounded, really, as anybody would be, because, you know, once these allegations are out there, they're very difficult to claw back.
0: And it really did overshadow his last few years, didn't it? It was very upsetting for him.
1: It did, because he'd had, uh, I think, what many people would describe as a a charmed life. He'd he'd stepped on a mine that didn't go off. He'd, as I say, gone right through every echelon of the British Army. Uh, He was well liked. And this came really out of the blue. Nobody can be accused of anything worse, really, in life. You know, this is about as bad as it gets. And the police made no attempt to uh, be... Uh, sympathetic about this, you know, they they raided his house with sort of battering ram insensitivity. And being in a small village, this was very quickly out in the public domain. You know, I think if you and I saw that someone's house had been raided by 20 officers, we'd think, well, there must be something in it. And of course, it turned out that, of course, there was absolutely not one shred of evidence against him or all those other poor unfortunate people who were accused as well
0: how did you feel as his son about what had happened the allegations made against him i imagine you were as certain as could be that there could be nothing in this but you must have felt so upset nick
1: well i was i was also rather perplexed you know there was there was absolutely no history of this at all so i assumed that they'd made a mistake or But they were so persistent with this, this went on for, you know, two years, really. His name, with others, was plastered across every paper in Britain.
0: Months before your dad's home was raided, synchronised raids with the homes of Harvey Proctor, the ex-Tory MP, and the homes of the recently deceased uh, former Home Secretary, Lord Britton, just months earlier, a senior Scotland Yard officer had said Nick's allegations were credible and true. They'd made their minds up in advance about the strength of the evidence, hadn't they?
1: The police of all organisations must know that people come forward with testimonies that are false. I mean, their job is to look at the evidence. And nobody, I don't think, made any inquiries into Dad's background. I mean, did he have a sort of reputation for this sort of thing? Or was there, you know, was there anything in his past? And, of course, there wasn't. And um, the police should have made it their business to find out.
0: I'm going to make a sort of confession here myself. I mean, I've been a crime reporter, writer, editor for the Daily Mail for 25 years. But before Operation Midland, I didn't know of your dad much to my shame, given all his achievements. It is a real tragedy, or a further tragedy in all this, that many people wouldn't have known about your dad and his unbelievable achievements to our country, but for Operation Midland. In view of that, can you talk through in more detail what he did in Normandy, for example, the start of his military career, because he was a very young man, wasn't he?
1: He was. He left school, and he joined the 60th Rifles, the Royal Rifle Corps, and he joined as a rifleman, so he, he was a, an old Etonian mixing with men, mainly from London, Cockneys, uh, which I think stood him in, he always said, stood, stood him in very good stead, because he learned how to sort of, you know, talk to and work with people who were completely different to him. He then landed on D-Day, well, the evening of D-Day, I think, going into the morning of D-Day plus one, as a lieutenant. So he was a platoon commander with much older and, uh, you know, battle-hardened men in his company. And he always uh, talks about his headmaster uh, taking him into his study after a, a game of rugby and saying, Bramwell, you funk that tackle. And he said when he landed on D-Day, you know, he was absolutely determined that he wasn't going to let either his men or himself down. From the beaches, spearheads struck out and pressed inland, through the villages towards Caen, Isini and Carentan, and Montbourg and St. Mary-Glise in the north towards Cherbourg. Fighting over open country and in the streets, destroying the German conquerors of France, capturing their supply dumps and taking prisoners. Airborne units fought an engagement here close to the gliders in which they had landed. He was wounded in the battle for Caen and then brought home. He then came back um, and uh, won the military cross, was wounded again, and also stood on a a shoe mine, a German mine, which uh, failed to detonate. So, you know, he had a quite an eventful war, uh, and then at the end of the war, he volunteered to go out to the Far East and actually saw uh, Hiroshima after the bomb had been dropped, and I think war had a lasting impression on him and his future career.
0: He was proud, I would imagine, of his achievements in World War II.
1: Yes, I mean, it didn't talk much about like so many soldiers you know that if they've experienced pretty horrendous things and he um he saw the carnage at the Falaise gap, and he had his i think company and platoon commander killed next to him, so you know a lot of these old soldiers don't talk too much about it i think he he talked more about it as he you know in his latter years
0: after the war he shot up the ranks, didn't he?
1: So he commanded every, as I said, every echelon of the British Army from a platoon commander, company commander, battalion commander, and then through brigade, division, army, and then eventually the head of Britain's armed
0: forces. In 1982, the Falklands War, your dad was head of the British Army then as well. Do you recall that time? Because it was a dramatic but also a very worrying time, wasn't it, in terms of the safety of our troops?
1: It was. He was never a sort of gung ho type of soldier. I, I think he had lots of misgivings about the Falklands War, and I think he thought there might be a great many more casualties with bombs being dropped on ships. He was always had the well being of his men at the core of his being, and I think he he recognised this could be a very close run thing. As it turned out, you know, they did an incredible job, but yeah, I think he he was worried. Had the Argentines known that the British were on their last legs logistically, with the Navy almost unable to guarantee the supply line any longer, perhaps they would have fought on. Instead, suddenly it was all over. The guns fell silent. The commander of the operation has sent the following message. Be pleased to inform Her Majesty that the white ensign flies alongside the Union Jack. ...in South Georgia. God save the Queen.
0: What happens next, not?
1: Thank you very much. Just your reaction, rejoice Prime
0: Minister. at that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. Good night, gentlemen. Yeah. That was a key moment in the premiership of Margaret Thatcher. I'd imagine he had a lot of contact with her at the time and when he went on to become head of the armed forces...
1: Yes, he was the chief of the defence staff when she was prime minister, so they had a lot of meetings at Downing Street, and they obviously had a, a very good working relationship, and they got on well, I think, although he had to hold his own. He, he recounts one story when um, the Americans invaded Grenada, and he was at a, a meeting in Downing Street, and he said, I, I think the Americans are going to invade and Mrs Thatcher said, no, no, I don't think so. They did have told us. Anyway, next, I think three days later, they did invade. In the middle of the night, Mrs Thatcher rang Dad up, shouting and screaming, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> he said, I did. But I think they had a good, robust working relationship.
0: And he also, I believe, had... Good professional relations with a series of defence secretaries as well who held him in very high esteem.
1: He was a very easy man to get on with, Dad, and he made it his business to sort of try and get on with people.
0: And after he finished his term as head of the armed forces, his public service didn't end, did it? He kept very active.
1: He was made Lord Lieutenant of London, which is a fairly extensive job, uh, because you're basically the Queen's representative in London if she's not there. And then, of course, he was made a Knight of the Garter, which is at the behest of Her Majesty, Chairman of the Dorchester Hotel when the Dorchester was shut down and refurbished, so that was an enormous job. President of the MCC during the South Africa crisis, um, which was also quite a difficult when the apartheid chairman of the imperial war museum he helped to set up the holocaust museum and lots of other things and he was always very you know busy in his village he was organized cricket matches and so where, where, wherever he was and whatever he did he did it with absolutely a hundred percent effort
0: you said earlier he was a family man been married to your mum for more than 60 years
1: yes a very happy uh, marriage i think and they had two children, myself and my sister Sarah. And they were very engaged. I mean, despite an incredibly busy life, I mean, which meant moving all over the world, you know, different houses, different countries, uh, he was always interested. And we got on, despite being quite different in many ways. And We had our moments, but we, by and large, got on well. He had a great love of cricket, and he he gave that to me. And we used to go to Lords quite regularly together. Uh, So I'm very grateful for that.
0: Nobody's above the law, Nick, in our country, or certainly nobody should be above the law. But the decision of the police to raid your dad's home and interview him under caution is a national scandal, in my opinion, along with the uh, the raids on the other suspects' houses. I say suspects, quote-unquote. What do you recall of the day that the police turned up at your dad's home
1: well i was at work and my wife pip rang me and said look papa which is what we called him his house has been raided i said well raided for what reason she said apparently there's been some complaint against him so i went home rang dad said you know what's going on and he said that this is absolute rubbish nothing to worry about It'll all be over. But, of course, it wasn't over, and the police were trying to make a point, I think. One is, that, as you say, no one is above the law, and they were going to sort of make that point as hard as they could. And, you know, they really hang him out to dry because, as I said before, once your name is out there and once these accusations are sort of attached to your name, there's no way back, really. My um, I mean, dad is a tough, fighting soldier, but he himself was said, you know, he'd never been so mortally wounded, even in battle, and it was no way to treat, you know, a man who'd served his country with a certain amount of distinction.
0: How low did he get? Because it wasn't that long before his name was in the public domain, and everything which he had worked for for more than ninety years, his reputation was being severely undermined how angry did he get
1: he got pretty angry i think he wasn't a man to suffer sort of the, the slough of despond and he had a lot of support i mean the daily mail i have to say were actually very supportive of him and he had support from all over really but the police obviously took these uh, accusations very seriously i mean he had to wait before an interview but he never he never hid away, you know, he never sort of stayed in inside and and I think anyone who knew him thought this was absolute rubbish and the Met should have known it was rubbish.
0: I was at Newcastle Crown Court in the summer of twenty nineteen when Carl Beach, aka Nick, was on trial, as you know, and I was one of a handful of journalists who saw the entire police interview with your dad. And I recall very clearly, Nick, that when I say it, it was only two or three of us there, we were looking at each other in shock at the ludicrous questions which were being asked of your dad. One which stands out for me was the question, Can you swim? to which your dad replied, I landed at Normandy and I jolly nearly had to swim. <laughs> he was then asked whether he had forced Carl Beach to eat his own vomit. Again, I think you're, it's fair to say your dad's patience was wearing thin then and things got worse because he was accused, with some other distinguished military figures, of torturing Carl Beach. To which your dad replied, ''This is ridiculous. They have taken in the whole army.'' to which someone who I think I'm probably going to be kind to him and call him a dim-witted detective said, the children were chained to rings on the walls, their hands tied above and their feet off the floor, to which your dad, again, was absolutely shocked and appalled. In fact, we're just going to play now an excerpt from that interview. Do you want to respond to that?
1: Well, I'm, I'm absolutely... Astonished, amazed and astonished and bemused. Uh, I mean, not any do, 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 do I deny absolutely any of these things, but we will do that in more detail. But I find it quite incredible that anybody should believe that uh, someone of my career standing integrity uh, should be capable of any of these things, including you know, things like torture, which are uh, unbelievable.
0: And I should add as well that your dad was also accused of attending a naked pool party with Carl Beach and Jimmy Savile. The idea of your dad having anything to do with Jimmy Savile is bizarre enough, Uh, let let alone a naked pool party. I think it was only when I saw that interview um, that I really understood fully the true extent of his ordeal not only that he had his home raided, your mum and dad's home raided, but then to be put through this humiliating experience. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I
1: I think that they backed themselves into a terrible corner, really. I mean, they wanted this to be true after the sort of disasters of the Jimmy Savile uh, investigation. Um... I think there are a lot of detectives thinking that, you know, they could make a name for themselves. They, for some reason, found this man plausible. And Cressida Dick, who, when she came down to visit my father and sister, actually said, you know, we found this man so plausible. I mean, it's outrageous, really. They failed to investigate properly. They were just seduced, really. They thought they'd had you know, this was absolute gold dust. And they failed miserably, either to look into Carl Beach. And if they had done, they would very quickly have realized that this was, um, you know, it was just all a tissue of lies. But more importantly, I think they never really looked into dad's life. And if they had, you know, people don't suddenly start abusing people That sort of one off 40 years ago I mean you know what did they know about my father and the answer is you know they hadn't bothered they hadn't interviewed his staff the whole thing is sad and it's it's really scandalous I think and you know no one in the metropolitan police has, has put their hands up and admitted to anything
0: extraordinary it was you spoke about Cressida Dick saying that Beach was a very plausible liar I mean I frankly regard that as nonsense his lies were, were just testing the incompetence and, and credulity of her officers. It was, uh, for me, a ridiculous assertion which doesn't stand up to scrutiny. The idea that the head of the security services had kidnapped Carl Beach's dog, that animals had been tortured, that uh, poppies had been pressed on his naked chest.
1: But they stated, the Metropolitan Police stated publicly that they were going where the evidence led and it's, it was what the public expected but there, of course there was no evidence and I believe you know very early on that they knew they were barking up the wrong tree but they persisted and were very slow. I mean the Daily Mail mounted a campaign for Commissioner Hogan Howard to actually you know say sorry. He wouldn't and he did eventually but it took an awfully long time and they just persisted with this and they will not put their hands up And none of the officers involved have even been reprimanded. You know, it's only been advancement, promotion, retirement on full pay, ennoblement. But no one has has paid any price at all, which seems, for what they did, extraordinary.
0: Because it is extraordinary, Nick, that the retired High Court Judge Sir Richard Henriquez said in his damning report very clearly that the police broke the law when they applied for search warrants to raid the homes of your dad, Harvey Proctor, and the late Lord Britton. In fact, Sir Richard spoke to this podcast a few months ago and had this to say about the Met's treatment of your dad during Operation Midland, which ran for 16 months until March 2016 and resulted in no arrests or charges of the accused VIPs.
1: It was a truly humbling experience seeing this great man. I had by then seen the video of his uh, interview, and he was treated as a common criminal. Every shocking allegation was put to him, and he, of course, uh, disputed every one.
0: And he completely threw the book at the Met, 43 major blunders. In fact, when his full report was released, the litany of blunders was far worse than that. Yet, as you say, everyone has avoided disciplinary or criminal action. For you, is that an indictment of the police disciplinary process? And then I am talking in particular of the police watchdog, which Sir Richard Henriquez was very scathing of.
1: Well, it, seems, it appears to have been a whitewash... My feeling is that there needs to be a proper independent public inquiry into this. I think it merits that. Men who have served their country with great distinction have been put through the worst possible ordeal. I mean, Harvey Proctor, who I've spoken to a number of times, I mean, it's quite appalling what he's been through. And, you know, the police just keep saying, well, you know, no one behaved inappropriately. They were just doing their duty. They might have got the odd thing wrong, but... So it is a, a national scandal, I think.
0: By the time that Beach was convicted of perverting the course of justice and other offences, including being a paedophile in the summer of 2019, your dad had received £100,000 compensation from the Met. But as your dad's lawyer, Drew Pettifer, said outside Newcastle Crown Court, it wasn't just about the money.
1: He was very concerned, as you'd expect, someone with such a reputation, how it would impact upon his legacy. And instead, as I referred to in court, when his descendants um, research about him, instead of finding all the good things that he did and um, all the service he gave our country, he'll forever be linked somewhere on the internet to these horrible, baseless, um, monstrous allegations.
0: What was that compensation for? Because, as you said earlier... Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, now Lord Hogan Howe, had previously refused to apologise.
1: I know that he felt he was underpaid, but I mean, I personally think that the the most important issue here is the search warrant, because they, you know, according to Judge Enriquez, uh, this was an illegal act, therefore a crime, and that should be looked into. You know, you're supposed to have evidence when you approach a a judge in order to gain a search warrant. The judge in question admits he was misled. So I think there are, you know, a lot of unanswered questions that need to be looked at.
0: A sceptic would say here that there has been a cover-up for political reasons. Why else when a High Court judge has made it very clear that he believes the law has been broken to get those search warrants, why else would there not be disciplinary or criminal charges over that?
1: Well, it's difficult to understand. And I still hope that there will be. I mean, I've actually written to Prime Minister, the Home Secretary, have yet to hear anything and probably won't. I mean, I know these are difficult times, but something needs to be done. I mean, you yourself said you thought this was possibly the worst public scandal you'd ever come across as a crime writer for the Daily Mail.
0: I recall that after Beach was convicted in 2019, your dad, in his last newspaper interview, said that he felt clearly that it should have been the police in the dock Not Carl Beach. That was quite an extraordinary statement to make, wasn't it?
1: He always said to me, "He said I don't blame Carl Beach. I mean, I think his patience uh, wore fairly thin with Carl Beach when he had the platform of his trial to sort of reiterate all the appalling uh, testimonies that he he came up with." But. He always said to me, I don't blame Carl Beach. I blame the Metropolitan Police, you know, for being so stupid to believe all this. And I, you know, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, they, they did not do their duty. Uh, they fell for really a, an extraordinary story, which was, I think, highly unlikely given the the people involved to have been true. But they fell for it hook, line and sinker and you know I think they should be brought to book
0: The Prime Minister we all accept has got an unbelievable national crisis to deal with at the moment but on the other side life has to go on, on and justice has to be seen to be done as well What would you say to him about what he or his ministers need to do one year on from your dad's passing?
1: There needs to be an independent public inquiry. I mean you know, this is a, a terrible scandal and, you know, men who have served their country so, with such distinction, have been laid so low. And, you know, if it can happen to them, it can happen to anybody. And it sort of highlights, really, the inefficiency of the police. I mean, it's, um, it's mind-boggling that they could have given this man so much uh, credence. And they must be secretly feeling pretty ashamed of themselves, I think.
0: One thing which occurred to me, your dad, you know, widely acclaimed not only his unbelievable achievements in public life, in the armed forces, but also for being a man of honour. Do you think that if he had been head of the Metropolitan Police when Operation Midland happened and unravelled, do you think he would have resigned as a matter of honour?
1: I do, yeah, I absolutely do. As you say, he was a man of great integrity. But, you know, it wouldn't have come to this because he would have made it his business to find out exactly what was going on. It's amazing to me that, you know, when all these very important people's names appeared on on somebody's desk at the Metropolitan Police, that someone didn't say, you know, we've got to be absolutely certain about this. So let's start looking into this man and pull his story apart. I mean, that's what they do with murder investigations, and then they go with the evidence. But for some reason, you know, they pussyfooted around this chap and, you know, didn't ask him any searching questions. And I think Carl Beach was pretty savvy, you know, he wouldn't do anything without his lawyer. And they just fell for it. I mean, in a most extraordinary way.
0: You mentioned earlier you've been in touch with the prime minister i think the home secretary as well and you also had you've tried to have dealings with the head of the metropolitan yes, Police, i Dick. Twice. Who,
1: i had one uh, reply but i haven't had a, a reply to my second letter
0: that sounds quite rude well, to me.
1: i'm i'm i mean i realize you know these are difficult times and I, I will try again you feel that the met are just trying to close ranks and hope that you know this will go away
0: when I discovered in September last year that Cresta Dick was the Assistant Commissioner who authorised the setting up of Operation Midland, her spokesman wasn't really keen to engage in answering questions fully. I mean, she's got her fingerprints on this, like her predecessor. It does seem that right to the very high level in the Met and in the police, there is a determination to try and minimise the already considerable damage done by this case
1: yes both Cressida Dick and her deputy Stephen House came down I think dad had, he wanted an end to this and he wanted them to come and you know say all the right things so they did come down and I wasn't actually allowed to be present because dad said he thought I'd rock the boat and his lawyer wanted to be present but it was only my father and my sister and they had a cosy chat. They said all the right things. So it was basically a public relations exercise. And, you know, I think Dad had had enough by that stage. But if he'd been younger, I think he would have pursued this, and especially if he had been still been a serving officer. They might not, of course, have the, the courage to do it then, but I think it would have been a different matter. But it is, you could not make this story up, really, could you, you know, from start to finish. It's been a bungled investigation, ill-conceived, uh, incompetently, negligently run, and based entirely on the uncooperated and malicious testimony of one man. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you couldn't make it up. Now, maybe they'll make a film of it one day.
0: And, of course, it was a year ago this week that your dad passed away. He'd been yeah, ill for 30, some time. From our previous conversations, I think you've made it clear that he realised that he was coming to the end of his life. And I hope that he wasn't dwelling too much on Operation Midland and hopefully reflecting on all his fine achievements and the, and the love he had from so many people.
1: Yes, I think he, you know, he hoped he would be fondly remembered by his family. And um, I think he, he certainly was. We miss him.
0: And he had some clear ideas, didn't he, about what his memorial service would be like. But sadly, due to the pandemic, it hasn't happened yet.
1: He did, and uh, I I think he'd have been very sad about that because he organised it, and it would have been a terrific and fitting tribute, I think. It was going to be a full uh, military funeral, you know, with uh, his beloved, now the rifles, bugles... I think there have been a lot of people that would have been in Winchester Cathedral. And, uh, yeah, I could imagine him looking down thinking, yes, just what I wanted.
0: Well, I hope that uh, one day that his life can be celebrated. I think most people would say that's the least he deserved, and your family as well. Thank you very much for joining me, Nick.
1: Thank you, Stephen, for allowing me to have my say.
0: You've been listening to a Mail Plus True Crime Special with me, Stephen Wright.